John chapter 2, we'll read verses 11 to 17. John 2, 11 to 17. We'll read about his disciples, his family, and his father's house. We'll start at verse 11. And we'll read actually from 11 to 22 to understand the context. Verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, and his brothers, and his disciples, and there they stayed a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords, and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Our Lord, we come in the name of Jesus Christ, thanking you for the redemption that we have. We thank you for this word that has saved us. And now we pray that we will have further insight into this word, that we might follow Christ more faithfully, more zealously than we do. Give us, Lord, this zeal that he has to be just like him. And we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, last time we were in the book of John, we covered verses, uh, the previous verses from verses 1 to 11, John 2, 1 to 11, the wedding or the marriage at Cana of Galilee. And we saw that this was the first miracle that Jesus performed, and that's what it says in verse 11. However, from last time, we did not sufficiently explore the, the meaning and, and the truth implications of verse 11, so we will begin there. And then this sign that he performs here or, or explains Later in chapter 2, we will talk about next time. That is in verses 18 to 22. But right now, verses 11 to 17, we need to understand better who his disciples were, who his family was, and who or what he meant when he says, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Let's now go back to verse 11. Remember, this sign or miracle that he performed in Cana of Galilee was the first one. This was the first one in his whole life. The first one in his whole life. It happened to be at this marriage. And when I say it happened to be, I mean he chose for it to happen there. And it was ordained that it would be a picture of the life to come and the celebration that we will have in the life to come. This was his first miracle. Now, if this was his first miracle, then there were no miracles that he conducted previously in his life, no miracles in his childhood. That's necessary to state because there are some writings that purport to be authoritative and Christian writings in the early period after the time of the apostles that claim that he did some fanciful miracles as a boy. And even in Islam, they also believe that he did certain miracles that are not recorded here in the Bible, which are not true. So that's the reason why we have to understand this was the beginning or the first of his miracles, because the Bible is authoritative and it becomes our lens for understanding anything outside of the Bible to see whether it's true outside of the Bible or not. Further, verse 11, when it says his signs, Jesus did, beginning of his signs, The miracles of the Bible, especially the miracles of the ministry of Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
tend to call these miracles by another name. They call them miracles or they call them powers, things like that, which uh, emphasize the power, the power of God, how powerful Jesus was having been God in human flesh walking among them, displaying his power. But in John's case, John prefers to call these supernatural acts of Christ signs. Now, he's not denying that there were miraculous powers because that's what he does throughout this book of John. The several signs he lists are miraculous powers. But his focus is on the significance of them, the signs that these miracles uh, perform, and that is, or point to, indicate. They are signs because they are signs of his person. They are signifying who he is. And they, he is trying to get us to see who Jesus is in his person, in his nature, in his ministry, who Jesus Christ is. Remember, his purpose from chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, is that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. So the signs are not only to show the miraculous power of God, but to point to God himself or the manifestation of God in human flesh to Christ himself, because if we see Christ for who he really is, we will see the Father. If we don't understand Christ correctly, we will not understand God the Father correctly. And that's why he's calling them signs, signs that point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Further, he says in verse 11, that these signs manifest his glory, his glory. His glory is to be manifested by these signs. Now, when it says his glory, it is pointing to his person and his nature. The power that he performs shows his person, his nature, his doctrine, who he is and what we ought to know about him. John is concerned about manifesting his glory. As he started in chapter 1, chapter 1, he says in verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ reflects the glory of the Father. So when he is performing these signs, it's his glory, it's his praise, it's his greatness that is manifested so that we might focus on him. Focus on him and on his person and work. In John chapter 11, this expression in a, in a similar way occurs. John 11, Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead, which takes supernatural power to raise him from the dead, divine power to do so. But notice before he does it, what he calls what he's about to do. What does he call it? John 11, verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. The glory of God, because whatever he does is not ultimately pointing to him, but pointing to God the Father, the miraculous power of God the Father. Now, we read in John chapter 2 how Jesus said to his opponents, the one sign, the ultimate sign that they should know and believe in to know that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, is his resurrection. Correct? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Well, that is the ultimate glorious sign. We read in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 verse 4. Romans 6 and verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The apostle says that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. Lazarus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, the glory of God. And here, too, Paul says Christ was raised from the dead through the glory, meaning the glorious power of the Father. To manifest his glory, Jesus was raised. And then one more place to confirm 
that when we say glory, we're talking about the manifestation of the power that God has to raise from the dead, which is the ultimate superior sign to believe in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. 13, 4. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we shall live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. He was crucified because of weakness. We are also weak, but he was raised from the dead. He is alive and we shall be alive first spiritually and then physically alive. How? Twice he says, because of the power of God, the power of God in Christ and the power of God in us. This manifestation, therefore, of the glory of God is in order to focus our attention on Christ and ultimately to the Father And when we look to Christ and the Father, we too will participate in that power. We too will participate in that glory. We too will be beneficiaries of the glory of God by grace. Further, back to John 2 and verse 11. 2, 11, he says, And his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. It's not stated absolutely and clearly which disciples he means, but I take it to mean that he means the 12. He means the 12 disciples because it is also these disciples who were at the, the wedding. It was these disciples who go to the temple in verse 17. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And also in verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, right? His disciples. It appears that John, at least in this context, is using this phrase, his disciples, to mean the 12, or at least in verse 22, the 11, right? The 11, that that he's talking about those disciples, not a larger group like the 70 or not a larger group like more than 500 at one time, or not a larger group like the 5,000 plus women and children. He's not talking about disciples in that sense. He's talking about his own, the ones who followed him in ministry. It says, though, in verse 11, they believed in him. Well, didn't we learn they already believed in him? Yes, they already believed in him. We learned that from chapter 1. They believed in him through the ministry of John. They believed in him initially when they encountered him and personally joined him in public ministry, right? They were believing in him. They were confessing that. They were saying, you are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. They already believed. So in verse 11, the apostle John means he, they further believed in him. They further believed. The disciples of Christ, the twelve, They had initial faith, but as they saw more and more of the person and work of Christ, their faith increased. Their faith grew. They had greater conviction. They had greater knowledge. They had greater zeal. Isn't that also what it says in verse 22? And they believed the scripture and the word which which Jesus had spoken. There's another occasion for them to believe further about all of this. It is true that Jesus' own disciples increased in faith, increased in their belief. As time went on, the more they were in the Word of God, the more they knew Christ, the more they saw the power of Christ working in their life and in the life of other people, they had greater and greater faith. And this is the same, this is true with you and me. This is the same with you and me. Remember what the apostles said to Christ. In Luke 17, 5, they said, Lord, increase our faith. They said, increase our faith. They wanted an increase of faith. They knew they had some faith, but they wanted more faith. And that's the same with us. Luke 17, 5 is not only applicable to the apostles, it's also applicable to you and me. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, 
Ephesians chapter 3. Paul the Apostle writes to the Ephesian church. They believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They already believe. But in Ephesians chapter 3, he prays a prayer for them. Let's see what he says in this prayer. Ephesians three fourteen. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What's he praying? He's praying this for believers. They already believe in Christ. What does he want? In verse 16, that God grant, according to his great riches, the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Well, I thought we already have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We do. But he wants the spirit to dwell in them even more and with more power. 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Don't we already have Christ dwelling in us? Yes, but he wants Christ to dwell in us more and more through faith. And don't we already experience the love of God? We already have a taste of the love of God, don't we? But he says that he wants us to have even more of that experience in verses 18 and 19. That it might expand, that it might broaden, that we might know even more of the love of Christ for us. And verses 20 to 21, that we might even experience the power of God in our life in ways that we never imagined, in ways that we never asked God to help us and direct our paths. And that's the same, not only for the 12 disciples, but this is the same for us in the church. This is necessary because we will go through times of doubt. We will go through times of sin. We will go through times of unbelief. The, the 12 disciples did that. They did that. We understand they did that when we read the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. At times, they get confused. At times, they are grieved. At times, they don't understand. Well, they were men just like you and me, and they needed to grow in faith. And the same will happen to you and me. And when it happens to you and me, we should not be alarmed. Don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged. But be reminded of this truth that God brings these things into our life that we might grow in faith and believe in him more and have greater conviction and, and love of him more and more. John chapter 2, verse 12. 2, 12. Chapter 2, verse 12 is a transitionary verse. It's a transitionary verse. It says, After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed a few days. They stayed there a few days because... Verses 13 and following say the Passover was happening and they needed to go from Cana of Galilee to Capernaum, their home, and then go to Jerusalem to the Passover festival. And at the Passover festival, all of the males were supposed to go and others could go, but they all needed to go. So this is a transitionary verse, but it's not an irrelevant transitionary verse. They went down to Capernaum. It says they went down because from their place in Cana of Galilee, remember we said it was likely there in a mountainous community with mountains and valleys. But then when they go to Capernaum, they have to go down to this city that's on the edge, northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, which is lower elevation. They go down to Capernaum. Well, why did they go to Capernaum? Why did they go to Capernaum? Because Jesus in his adulthood, remember what Jesus did in his adulthood? 
He had his station or his home. His home was in this city of Capernaum. We'll see in Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. It says, he came to his own city. Well, which city was that? That city was Capernaum. There on the northern boundary of the, the Sea of Galilee. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he had come back to Capernaum, several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. He was at home. Capernaum, therefore, was his home or his station for his public ministry. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. But he was conducting his ministry out of Capernaum in Galilee on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. That's where he was. So that's why they went there. They went there. We don't know at what point they went there. And we know certainly by this point that his father, most likely his father, had passed away. That's why it says in John 2, verse 12, he and his mother and his brothers went there, but not his father. His father was alive when Jesus was 12 years old and the whole family and and the relatives in a caravan went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. We know he was alive by then, but sometime between Jesus' age, 12 and 30, his father had likely passed away. And that's why he's not mentioned here in verse 12. His mother and his brothers and he are all together. Now, let's explore his mother and his brothers, his family. His family, mother and brothers at this point. We know his mother is Mary. We know that when she was engaged to Joseph, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapters uh, 1 and 2, right? We know that that is the case. His mother was Mary. His father, Joseph, was his legal and adopted father, not his natural, not his biological father. There's no question, no doubt about that, biblically speaking. But verse 12, verse 12, it says his brothers. Who then were his brothers? Who then were his brothers that resided there in that home, in that house, in Capernaum? Who were they? Well, let's go to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 and verse 1. 6, 1. And he went out from there, and he came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. He wondered at their unbelief. Well, who are his brothers? Well, it says there in verse 3, he is the carpenter, son of Mary, brother of whom? James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? So this means that Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. 
He had at least four brothers and two sisters, at least seven children in that family from Mary. And I say from Mary. Why do I say from Mary? When it says there in in Mark 6, verse 3, they are not talking about cousins. They're not talking about cousins, male and female cousins. They're talking about immediate family, the immediate family or the nuclear family in the immediate household. They're talking about that, not the extended family, not the relatives, but those in the family. We have to be talking about his brothers in that way, not cousins. This teaches that Mary had more children, and she had these children from Joseph. After Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary came together as husband and wife do, and Mary bore these children, at least six more children born. Now, let's, let's go to Matthew chapter 1 to confirm this. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1. The angel announces to Joseph that he should marry Mary. And it says in Matthew 1, 24, And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Kept her a virgin until, it says, until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. If it says until, that implies that after that, after that Joseph and Mary had relations as husband and wife in the typical way, that they did not refrain from doing so. And if that's the case, then that's the way we have to take it. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. After Jesus was born, Luke chapter 2, verse 21. 2, 21. Luke 2, 21. And when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what has what, what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons." Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That also implies that there was second and third born so forth in the family. If Jesus was the firstborn in the family, the others followed after Jesus through Mary. So these brothers are the literal immediate brothers of Jesus through Mary. Now, this is contrary and what we're saying here is contrary to the idolatry and excessive veneration, excessive homage that is given to Mary these days. And one of the means by which it's done is to say that she was such a pure and holy and innocent woman that she did not have normal sexual relations with her husband throughout her whole life. It's, the doctrine is known as the perpetual virginity of Mary. The perpetual virginity of Mary. Yet the Bible does not teach that. It's far from the Bible. Yes, she was a godly woman, but she was not a sinless woman, and she was not a woman who did not have the normal, natural, proper desires within marriage to have relations with her husband. And she did. She did have that, and she did bear these other children in the literal way. They weren't cousins, in other words, cousins, whether male or female cousins. Not like that. Um, further, let's, when we saw 
the brothers of Jesus, when we saw the names of them, there are two of them who appear later in the Bible. Two of them who appear later in the Bible and have significance in terms of understanding um, the relationship of Jesus and his family. Two of the brothers were, it says, Jude, and it also says James. Jude and James. Now, James is the James who wrote the book of James, who became one of the significant leaders of the early church, and he was also known as an apostle. Also known as an apostle. In Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. Galatians 1, verse 19. Paul is speaking and he says, I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Except James, the Lord's brother. This James is the same James that we saw in Mark 6, verse 3, one of the sons of Mary, the Lord's brother. That's this James. And this is the same James who wrote the book of James. The same James who wrote the book of James. We have to keep this James distinct from James who was the brother of John. James and John were the two brothers of the sons of Zebedee. So that, that's who they were. And, but this one is the Lord's brother. And the other one, the other one that's named Jude or Judas, it's not Judas Iscariot. It is the Jude who wrote the book of Jude. The Jude who wrote the book of Jude is the same Jude or Judas or Judah mentioned in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. That's the same Jude. So those two, James and Jude, also wrote scriptures, and they were related to Jesus. Now, a word here, another word about his family, has to do with the fact that at times his brothers did not believe in him. His brothers did not believe in him. Later they did, as we just saw, but initially they did not. During his public ministry, for a a certain point, they did not. For example, John chapter 7. John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 1. And after these things, Jesus walking in Galilee, for he... Um, was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. For not even his brothers were believing in him. At this point, they did not believe in him. However, so that was at some point during the beginning of Jesus' ministry, they were not believing in him. That means that throughout their life, they were not believing what John the Baptist had been preaching about Jesus of Nazareth. They weren't believing it. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. But by this time, after the resurrection and after the ascension of Christ, after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus told them to pray and wait for the day of Pentecost. And who is there praying and waiting? Acts 1, 14, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. His brothers. So his four brothers are there now. They believed by that point. And this is also teaching us the same thing. We want our families to believe. We pray for them to believe. It may never happen, or it could happen. In Jesus' case, it did not happen for a long time, but then it finally did happen. They came to believe in him. So do not be discouraged. Persevere in prayer. Persevere to pray on their behalf. 
Okay, then let's return to John 2 and we'll begin at verse 13. John 2, verse 13. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover. They were obligated this first festival at the beginning of the year in the reckoning of the religious calendar of the Jews would start about equivalent to our month of March, usually around the month of March, sometimes in early April. So that's when the Passover of the Jews would take place, and that would be the beginning of the year for them. And when this happened, Jesus went up to Jerusalem where it was supposed to be celebrated. They were supposed to all gather together, all in one place, at the city of Jerusalem. Since Jerusalem is in, on one of the mountains of that area, it's said that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And if you go even today, where there are remnants of the temple, this temple that Jesus visited, there in Jerusalem, you have to go up, ascend a mountain in order to visit those um, grounds and the, the place of the remaining wall of this temple of Jerusalem. That's where Jesus went up. Verse 14. Actually, before I explain verse 14, when we say Jesus went up and he celebrated this Passover, it's not only for what he's about to do to explain what he's about to do, but this is a part of Jesus' obedience. Jesus had to obey the law in all of its requirements for the the Jew except he was not a Levite or a priest, so he did not obey it in those ways. He obeyed the law as it regards, regarded him, both in its ritual sense and also in the sense of his righteousness, his daily behavior and his activity. So he went up to show that, we, that he perfectly obeyed it so that we might be saved through his perfect obedience. And then also he's demonstrating here who he is. That's the other reason why he went up, and that's what we will see beginning at verse 14. So verse 14, And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changer seated. And he made a scourge or whip, a whip of cords, and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. He goes to the temple where the festival of the Passover was to be celebrated, where the Passover lamb was sacrificed. He was going there according to his duty, and he finds there in the temple. When it says in the temple, it does not mean in the place where only the Levites could go because then Jesus would have sinned. And it does not mean in the most holy place, in the inner room, the most holy place called the Holy of Holies. He did not go there. It means he went to the grounds of the temple. And there were certain segments or grounds in the courtyard of the temple where things were done or where people could congregate. And one of those places, by this time of this temple, also known as Herod's temple, because Herod, the king, he expanded that temple, renovated it, enlarged it, and beautified it because he was somebody who took pleasure in those kinds of things. He was not a believer, but he took pleasure in those kinds of things. And in doing so there, he had some among his relatives who were of, the Jewish, uh, of, of Jewish descent, but he also wanted to please the people in some ways. So this is what he did. He spent a lot of effort in doing so. Well, in this courtyard, there was a place where these money changers and these merchants could gather there in order to sell to the people these animals and to exchange money. And why would that be necessary? That would be necessary because for the Passover festival, people, the people of the Jews and also the proselytes, proselytes are converts to the Jewish faith, the people of the Jews and Gentiles who became proselytes, they would come from foreign nations from all across the world, as we can see in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. They came from all kinds of places. They would, in their travel, bring money, foreign money, Greek money, Roman money. They would bring foreign money 
to Jerusalem and need to have it exchanged to be able to pay, for example, the temple tax, which was half of a shekel to pay that, but also to purchase the animals that they needed for the, their sacrifices to celebrate the Passover sacrifice because they would not or could not bring from great distances all their animals so they would bring money and then do so there. And all of this was arranged by God. All of this was arranged by God. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, that there is a section there where at the end of the chapter where God explains to the Jews that if they come to the place where God has chosen, and it happens to be, it comes in time to be Jerusalem, you come to this place and you live a far distance away, then take your money from that distance. And when you come to the place where God chose to put his temple, then you just buy whatever you need to buy. Okay, so all of this part, this part is not the sin. This part is not the, the crime right here that Jesus is undermining or trying to destroy. That's not what he is doing. All of that was ordained by God. But the problem was that they were doing it on the grounds of the temple. That was the problem. They should not be doing those things on the grounds of the temple. That was where the problem resided. And when they did it, when they come to the temple, they should have been thinking about God, not thinking about the money they're making, not worrying about this or that thing, not focused on that. And even if they, some of these people were cheating the foreigners with their exchange rate and whatever, if they were doing things like that, exploiting the foreigners that were coming to Jerusalem, which some of that could have been also happening, whatever the case of the crimes or the sins of the people, the main issue was that they were doing these things on the grounds when their focus ought to have been the worship of God, not the desire to make money, to exchange money, or even to exploit money in the exchange of money, uh, exploit people in the exchange of money. None of that should have been happening. It should have been the focus on the worship of God. That's where the problem was. That's why Jesus made this whip. So this means he intentionally went in wrath in order to undermine what was happening there. Something like that today. Um, today, something that's very common, especially with large churches, is that they have coffee cafes. Cafes where you can buy and sell your coffee, you can buy your, your snacks to eat with your coffee, your, your donuts and this and that, on the grounds of the church. They do that in the lobbies of churches. They do it and they, they make money on doing that. And they might even hire an outside business to have their coffee shop on the grounds of the church. There, when people are coming to worship, they do those kinds of things. That's the kind of thing that is crossing the, the boundary line of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable when you come to worship God. Another thing, this is not a, a, so common of an example, but I have even seen a large church that brought a new car and parked the new car in the lobby of the church in order to talk about a prize or a, a festival or some kind of... Uh, celebration fair that they were going to have in, to have there at the church and somebody could win that car, win this new car in the lobby of the church building of a mega church. See, these are the kinds of things people do that ought not to be done. They ought not to have anything to do with church in the first place, but then to do it there on the premise of the church building, that's even more egregious to do so. And then to do it on the Lord's Day makes it even more egregious. So these things are the kinds of things that happen. They happen throughout history. And Jesus here, when he comes, he's showing who he is, demonstrating who he is, that his first and foremost desire is to please his Father. His first and foremost desire is to practice righteousness and to expect righteousness for everybody to understand the righteousness of God, that he has a zeal for doing the will of God and that which is good, right, and pleasing in the sight of the Father. That's why he says 
in chapter 8, verse 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He came for one purpose and one purpose alone, to do the will of the Father. He did not come to do his own will. He did not come to do anybody else's will. He came to do God's will. So in that place where God is supposed to be worshipped, he could not tolerate anything else. That was the problem that he faced, and he confronted it. He confronted it like that. Remember, this is what also Nehemiah did from Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah also saw wrong things, evil things happening in the temple. He saw wrong and evil things happening in his city, and he rectified it. He saw wrong and evil things happening in the priesthood, and he did what he could to confront the priesthood and the Levites to make sure that they were doing what they should do. And he found reliable and faithful men who would be able to help him carry out that which God expected in the worship of God, in the word of God, to implement those things. Jesus is doing the same here. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul expects us to do the same. The church, to have this kind of zeal for truth and righteousness. Our first example is taken from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1. Paul the Apostle has this same zeal and he expects the Corinthians to practice it in relation to sin in the camp. Sin in the household of God. 1 Corinthians 5, 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter, not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or, uh, and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. We're dealing here with an unrepentant wicked man who commits this heinous sexual immorality in the church, in the presence of other people, flaunting it. That is, he has his father's wife. And the people did nothing about it. And Paul says, I've already dealt with this in my mind, though I'm absent. Why have you not dealt with it? You should... Deal with it in your midst. Don't tolerate this kind of wickedness in your midst. And he says, we ought, have to, uh, we ought to have nothing to do with people like this. People like this in the church, endorsing it, saying it's okay. We all have our sins. We all have our faults. It's okay. We're, we'll all get along. Doesn't matter. No, when this sin happens, that person, that man, he says in verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Get rid of it. Get rid of him. Don't let him continue when he continues in unrepentant sin. It's one thing to sin 
and then repent of it, and for us to help the person, the repentant person, deal with it. That's what we should be doing. But when the person is unrepentant, whether it's sexual immorality or any of these other sins he mentioned, we have to deal with it. Don't tolerate it. That's in the, in the realm of morality or ethics. What about theology? Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We should not tolerate that in reference to false theology either, according to Galatians 1. If you've read Galatians lately, you know that Paul is very upset, he's very uptight, he's angry when he writes this letter. And I think it's righteous indignation when he writes this letter. He could not, he could not be sinning when he wrote this because he's writing by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Galatians 1.6, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul says that the Galatians should not be tolerating any compromise to the true gospel he had preached to them. And he reiterates the truths of that in this letter. They should not compromise on the true gospel because whoever compromises on it, even if he returns and preaches or an angel from heaven comes and he says, whoever preaches a contrary gospel, a different gospel, which is a false gospel, he is under a curse. So don't tolerate it. Have nothing to do with it. Stay away from it. This is the kind of zeal, the kind of righteous indignation that Jesus Christ our Lord had, and he also expects us to have in relation to the things of God. Do not tolerate, do not compromise with sin in the household of God. Returning to John 2, in verse 16, John 2, 16, we see here a unique phrase. He says, my father's house, my father's house. Jesus never spoke in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He never spoke among his disciples and said, our father. He taught us to pray, our father who art in heaven, but he never said our father. In John especially, at about 27 times in the book of John, he says, my father, my father. And he does so also in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why does he say my father? Because he is uniquely related to his father in a way that you and I are not. That's what he explained in chapter one. But his opponents, his opponents did they understand him that way? Yes. Chapter 5, John chapter 5. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath day. He heals a man who had been lame for 38 years, and he does so on the Sabbath day. The Jews who oppose him confront him on this. And then verse 17, this is Jesus' answer to them. Verse 17, but he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Verse 18. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John the Apostle explains what the persecutors of Christ were thinking in their mind because Jesus said, my father, that's what lit them. That's what triggered them. My father. Not only did Jesus heal on the Sabbath and they were appalled at that, but 
that Jesus would call God my Father, establishing that Jesus was proclaiming that he had a unique relationship with the Father. And because of it, they wanted to kill him. There's no way that you possess the deity that is implied by saying, my Father. Therefore, they wanted him to go away with him. Jesus, in fact, does. He has this unique relationship to the Father. He has this unique desire to please the Father. And he is the proper example of how we should worship the Father, what we should think about our worship of the Father. Jesus is this perfect example. Then lastly, we come to chapter 2, verse 17. 2.17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. The disciples remembered this scripture from Psalm 69, verse 9. 69, verse 9. That is one of the Christological Psalms of the Old Testament. David writes, but he writes of Christ. David is the writer, the author, the prophet who writes it, but he's writing of Christ. And he says that zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus prays to the Father and he says, I have this zeal. I have this fervency. I have this enthusiasm righteously for your house, your worship, and it consumes me. It controls me. When we speak of it this way, in this figurative way, to be consumed with something, it means to have this righteous zeal and even righteous indignation for the things of God. Jesus had it. His disciples remembered because they knew that their own teachers, including and especially John, John the Baptist, had taught many scriptures from the Old Testament to be references to Jesus Christ. And they knew about it, but now they were witnessing with their very own eyes that this scripture is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They knew them to be that. That's why it says they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So if Jesus is this perfect example of zeal, then what about us? What about us? Let's understand well, this zeal or this jealousy for the things of God or this anger or righteous indignation for the things of God, let's understand it in the proper way. Firstly, that it applies not just, not just for Jesus, but it applies to you and me. We come to Psalm, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. David writes, and when he writes, he writes not only about his own experience, but he writes for our experience. After all, isn't Psalm 119 for our spiritual benefit? Yes. So Psalm 119 and verse 53. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. He has, and he's talking about burning righteous indignation. So when he sees wrong, when he sees evil, when he sees wickedness happening, and that's contrary to the laws of God, to the word of God, when he sees that happening, what happens to him? Burning indignation arises to consume him to take control of him, to desire to do that which is right. To do that which is right. In 119, 158. 119, 158. Uh, actually, let's begin at 157 to confirm that David and we are not sinning when we have this response. 157. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them, because they do not keep 
your word. He says he has many against him, but he does not turn aside from the commandments of God. He wants to do God's will. So he's not sinning when he is considering what his persecutors and adversaries are doing. Verse 158, then he beholds, he looks at the treacherous people and he loathes them. He has this disdain or disgust for them because they don't keep the word of God. He has that same. Let's turn to the New Testament and find there a couple of references. In the New Testament, Ephesians, the first one, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Be angry and yet do not sin. Be angry. He doesn't mean be angry flippantly for every little thing and anything. He's not saying that. He means to be angry in a righteous way. Be angry and yet do not sin. Like David did in Psalm 119, 157 and 158. He loathes people. He detests and despises people because of their wickedness. But he's making sure he keeps the commandments or the testimonies of God. And Paul says the same to us in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and yet do not sin. Yes, it's right and okay to be angry at wickedness, both within you and within, in, in, inside other people when you see that in others, but don't sin when you're angry about it. There is a point in which you could cross the line, you could transgress the word of God and handle the situation wrong. So don't handle it in a wrong way is the point. Because when you handle it in a wrong way, letting it prolong, verse 26, don't let the sun go down, and in verse 28, you give the devil an opportunity. So don't let that kind of anger, what starts as righteous anger, don't let it fester, don't let it remain in you, persist in you, because then it could be sinful anger and you might lash out in the wrong way, whether in word or in deed. And when you do so, it is the devil who is doing it. And one more place, and we'll close with this. Chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit whom you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully." You bear with this beautifully or you tolerate this. He's, his point is that the Corinthians had heard the true gospel and Paul had espoused them, engaged them to Christ with the figure of speech that one day we will be married to Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right now we are engaged to Christ and finally we will be joined to him as husband and wife when he returns. But meantime, the Corinthians had been putting up with, tolerating, bearing with false teachers who preached another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. And it bothered him. And it so bothered him, he calls it a godly jealousy. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. This jealousy or this zeal, his, he's upset. When jealousy occurs, you are upset. But contrary to modern common English in, in the modern age, when we say the word jealous, we almost always, almost always we mean it in a negative way. But not in the Bible. Biblical jealousy, as he calls it in verse 2, godly jealousy, has to do with this injustice. 
If we have been espoused to Christ, we should only love Christ in a pure and right way, right? Well, in the same way, he's using this human analogy of marriage. When when we are engaged to be married, and, and also once we are married, should we have fornication or sex with anyone else? The answer is no. So if that happens, let's say the husband does it, should the wife be happy about it and smile and have no emotions? No. She should be angry. She should be upset. She should be jealous for that relationship because it has been breached, right? That's the way it should be. So when that happens, it's a God. Well, then if she takes matters into her own hand and then goes and hires somebody to assassinate her husband, then she's gone overboard, right? So then she is sinning. Initially, she's got righteous indignation. Nobody should commit adultery, right? Against one's spouse. That should not happen. But then if the spouse, the innocent spouse, lashes out and does wrong to to pay up or to get equal, even with that transgressing spouse, and does something wrong, then that's going overboard. But in her righteous indignation, her righteous jealousy initially, she ought to have that. That's right and normal and good to have that. And then act in a right way, a righteous way to handle the matter. Not in an excessive way to handle the matter. This is the same that the Bible expects of all of us. We should have zeal for the things of God that consume us. And when we have it, Our boundaries will be the Word of God. The way we respond to it will be according to the Word of God. That's what we ought to always be about. Pursuing Christ, the love of Christ, in every way. Just as He was perfect, we ought to pursue perfection in the same way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.